0: I'm Silas Farley, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. In this episode, I sat down with the celebrated former New York City Ballet principal dancer, Helgi Thomason. We discussed his remarkably fruitful and multi-dimensional career in ballet, as a performer with both the Joffrey Ballet and Harkness Ballet before his years with City Ballet, his work as a choreographer, and, for the past 37 years, as Artistic Director of San Francisco Ballet. Our conversation includes discussion of several ballets in City Ballet's repertory, in which Helge originated roles, notably Jerome Robbins's The Goldberg Variations, and two works that Balanchine choreographed for the 1972 Stravinsky Festival, Symphony in Three Movements, and Divertimento from La Beze de la Fée. Other highlights of our conversation include Helgi's memories from the first international ballet competition in Moscow in 1969, comparing the creative processes of Balanchine and Robbins and his reflections as he comes to the close of his final season as artistic director in San Francisco. A native of Iceland, Mr. Thomason's life in dance has taken him across the globe, and he has made an indelible mark in the world of classical ballet through his development of dancers and choreographers. I trust you will enjoy our conversation. Helge Thomason, welcome to the Hear the Dance podcast. It is a delight to get to visit with you.
1: Well, nice to be here.
0: I wanted to ask you, Mr. Thomas, and you've been on such an amazing journey in dance. What was your first exposure to ballet?
1: Uh, My first exposure to ballet was I was five years old. Uh, My mother took me uh, to see a performance of uh, three soloists from the Royal Danish Ballet that had come to town. And uh, I have no recollection what they danced or anything, but I remember colors. I still remember colors, music. Yeah, that's about it,
0: yeah. And what was it that captivated you about the art form so much that you wanted to actually do it after seeing it, then wanting to participate? Well,
1: that's a good question because I don't remember anything about it, but my mother told me that ever after that, when the music was playing on the radio, I tried to imitate what I'd seen, jumping around, turning and and pretending that I was uh, doing the same thing that I had seen on stage.
0: And your early teachers in Iceland were the Danish couple, Eric and Lisa Bidsted. And what was that training like? And did they teach you the Bornenville technique or?
1: Well, I had studied the two Icelandic uh, women teachers who had studied ballet both in, in, in London and in, in America. Uh, I stayed with them about a year. Uh, and then the Danish couple had been engaged by the, by the National Theater who had started a ballet school a very typical European way of doing things. So I went over there. They recommended I should go with those Danish teachers. They would teach me much more than they could. So that's how it started. I was about nine years old when I started there.
0: And did they teach the Bornenville classes or any of that particular no, technique? No. no.
1: They, uh, even though they were Danish, they were not from the Royal Danish Ballet. Uh, they had danced other places, but they had done most of their studies. I think they started, of course, in Denmark with some private school or whatever. I'm not quite clear on that, but I know for the further studies and some dancing they did in, in Paris. So they basically taught more the French school than the, the Bourneville.
0: And, and how did you feel learning that as a little boy? What about the movement do you remember that you enjoyed?
1: It was just fun. I liked it, you know, it's it freedom of, of movement and music. And uh, it, it was just a lot of fun for me.
0: And what was your first performance?
1: first performance was with those two Icelandic women teachers Um, I must have been about eight years old I think or maybe turning nine it was just before I went to the National Ballet School and the music was uh, from uh, the Nutcracker also the flowers
0: so you've spent a lot of years with that music I I sure have (laughs) and never get tired of it oh it's so beautiful it's so beautiful and how did you come to train and dance in Denmark?
1: Well, through the, the Danish couple that had come to Iceland, they, they invited me. First, they invited me um, to come and spend time with them three months in Denmark during the summer. I was uh, 10 years old. I was going to be 11 later that year. And uh, that was just to have fun and uh, look at the... They both worked and danced at the Pantomime Theatre in Cop- Copenhagen in the Tivoli Gardens. So I saw performances every night because I always went with them and never stayed home. And one, the early one was always based on the pantomime of comedy de la arte you know, with Harlequin and Columbine and Pierrot and all that. That was a traditional thing. They always had that a half hour performance, 7.45 at night. And then at 9.45, the ballet performance started. So I saw you know, three months, I saw a dance every night.
0: And what were your impressions of that, seeing a company like that working consistently?
1: Well, it was fun. You know, I, I didn't have to do anything. I, I, didn't have, I didn't take classes or anything. I just ran around in the beautiful Tivoli Gardens in between performances. And um, as a 10-year-old, I had the freedom to do that.
0: What a magical experience. Yeah, it was magical. Yeah in the timeline there you you were doing your training in Iceland and then you did your training did some of that training in Denmark and would you go back and forth like in the summers or did you go there for the year at some point
1: traditionally in Iceland uh, at that time when I grew up if you were you know school was out early in Iceland at that time early May until usually around October first so you had two choices as a kid you you would be sent on a farm to work during the summer or you would be sent on a fishing boat. and um, you know that was just to learn you know work ethics and um, we had distant relatives who had a big farm and I was sent there. So I worked in the summer on a farm from when I was about seven, eight, nine. when I went 10 years old I went to Denmark. I went back when I was 11 and 12 and 13. On the farm, during all summer, you know, no classes or anything, you know. And uh, then the Eric Beeston and his wife Lisa came every fall. You know, stu- valley school started in early October until late ap- April, and then that's when I studied. And during the summer, there was nothing.
0: But that work ethic—that's That's such a valuable, valuable lesson.
1: Yes, it sure was. Yeah.
0: And from there, you went to train in Denmark next? Or was next you are going to the School of American Ballet?
1: No, I was engaged as a 15-year-old to go to Denmark to dance at the the Pantomime Theater. Mm. So that was during the summertime because it's only open from May till September 15, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, then back to Iceland for my school when I was 15 or 16. I finished high school. Then I had uh, an offer to stay in Denmark all winter long when I was uh, 17 to study. I, I got a, to pay for my room and board. I, I danced in my Fair Lady, which was a big hit in Copenhagen at that time. I did some uh, what they called uh, school performances that were for children in schools, and that was uh, it was called Knickerbockern Holiday or something like that. And that was choreographed by whoever was the, the choreographer. I can't remember. So it was different. But I, you know, I but had classes every day, so I, I studied and I, I paid for my room and board. I had signed a contract with a production company of doing *My Fair Lady*, but in the last minute, it was supposed to open in early fall, I think it was. And uh, the leading lady got very sick. I think it was a very bad case of of. Of influenza, mm-hmm. so they delayed the opening for like two or three weeks. At which time, uh, my mother got in contact with me and says, "Why don't you come home? Because you're going to be gone all year if we don't see you." So uh, I went back to Iceland, and as it would happen, um, Ballet USA, Darren Robbins, Ballet USA was performing at the theater. Mm-hmm. So my teacher Lisa, who was there teaching, Eric was uh, had been the one in charge of my Fair Lady. Uh, all the production, he was not there. So she took me to see Ballet USA, and that was astounding, and I loved it. She uh, arranged for me to have an audition for Mr. Robbins, if I could take class with the company, which permission was given, and I came the next morning and, and took class with them. Very, very nervous, 17-year-old, and uh, was in the back of, of the center, and one of the dancers um, in the company, I think his, he was Canadian, his name was uh, Larry Gratis. He took me by my hand, he said, listen, you're here to audition. Uh, I didn't speak very much English, but I understood it enough. And he said, you have to go in front. So he put me right in front so Mr. Roberts could see me. After that, um, Lisa asked him if there was any possibility I could be an apprentice in the company. And he said, well, I don't have apprentices. And, this is just a pickup company, so uh, you know there's no chance. But um, he was very I, I think spoke very favorable really to her about me, and uh, he said, "Well, uh, let's see what I can do." Mm-hmm. I went back to Denmark to did my fair lady, and, and I was in the middle of performance of my fair lady in the, all the way to the spring, and I got a letter from him offering me to come to School of American Ballet for, to study. Uh, first, he wanted me there from the, the spring to the end of the year, but I couldn't go because I had a contract. So I wrote back, um, asked if I could come in the fall. So it, that was, permission was given, yes, you can be there from the fall and, until, you know, that whole school year. But it was only free tuition, you know, there was no money involved. The Ford Foundation had just awarded School of American Valley, I guess, a huge grant but unfortunately I, I came a, a week after it had been designated who would get free scholarships and all that. So oh, no. I didn't get any money, which was really difficult for me because my parents uh, struggled to, to uh, send me money to, to stay there. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, I, I stayed, I came, I think it was end of September. I turned 18 in October, so I was there and found a place to live, at class a day, every day. Thinking back on that, it was very difficult because, you know, first of all, I was alone. I, I barely spoke English. Mm-hmm. Classes was one class a day, an hour and a half, I think 12.30 to two, and that was it. I had nothing else to do all day long or all morning. I mean, thinking back, I would have loved to have been able to take more classes or something like that. So there I was uh, exploring New York, uh, walking everywhere because I didn't have money to do anything else uh, so that was that was a, a difficult time for me, a lonely, difficult time. I got to meet a couple of dancers who were a boy and a girl who were dating and they were very nice to me and, and invited me once in a while up to their they were living together and, and they invited me for dinner at their apartment, which was very, very welcome because I And slowly I picked up a little bit of English, but um, then end of, came spring, um, I spoke to Glebov, Mrs. Glebov, and I said, um, I could make myself understood enough, that I said, you know, I would love to join the company if I could. And she said, she would speak to Balanchine, and Balanchine, I guess, said to her that he didn't need anybody. He had just recently hired Eddie Vallella, and, um, you know being sort of more or less the same height he didn't need anybody else so that was very disappointing and uh, i said well then i have to go back because i have no more money to stay here you know i can't even the free tuition so i went back to to denmark uh, they offered me again a job in tivoli from there i met um, my teacher eric fisted uh, new eric broom and uh, contacted him in copenhagen so, I could meet with Eric Brun and maybe he could advise me what to do. So, I met Eric Brun at the Royal Danish Ballet, met in the canteen, and he was sitting there with a young man who was a dancer. And being that I spoke fluent Danish, of course, he introduced me to this dancer who had just defected. His name was Nureyev. But of course, he didn't speak Danish. I didn't speak Russian, or he spoke a little bit of French. But anyway. That's the first time I met Rudolf. Um, but Eric advised me to go back to America. He felt the future in, in ballet was in America. And being that I was not Danish born, uh, I could not be part of the Royal Danish Ballet. And it was, uh, it was actually only when I was leaving Denmark to go to study at the School of American Ballet the year before, that people at the Royal Danish Ballet came interested and said, well, maybe we could arrange something or, or do something. I know you're not Danish born, but you know, we don't take foreign dancers and all that. So, and I, by that time, I, I sort of said, no, I'm going to America. You know, I've been here three years and there's been no interest. So wow. but that was that. So I, I came back to America and, and Eric Brun was extremely nice and offered to write me introductory letters to American Ballet Theater because he had danced with that company many times. And also if it didn't work, uh, Robert Joffrey Ballet, whom he was very much aware of, and said to me that if you can't get into ballet theater, don't hesitate to go to Joffrey Ballet. They're a smaller company, but in some ways it's better because you get to dance more and get more experience, you know, quicker. So I went to New York and said, to, uh, my parents said, we can stay three months and if you, we can support you three months and if you haven't got a job, then you have to come back and go to college or whatever. So ballet theater, I made inquiries there and Lucia Chase uh, informed this person who had spoken on my behalf that she had just recently hired David Richardson and uh, didn't need anybody else. So the next place I went to Joffrey and uh, they said, well, he said uh, he had gotten the letter also. So had Lucia Chase, but Robert Joffrey said, well, come and take some classes, which I did. And of course I had to pay for them. And you always paid a week in advance. And I took at least two classes a day. You know, that was was helpful. You know, my day was more occupied than just with one class. So that was that and um, I uh, took classes all of October, all of November, came close to Christmas and I was getting letters from home saying, said, this is it, we can't, you know, if you haven't gotten a job by uh, Christmas, you come home. So I, I spoke to uh, Joffrey's assistant and she said she would talk to Mr. Robert Joffrey and, and see. I finally got to see him personally in his office and, Told him my situation and he said, Well, um, yes, I will take a chance on you. I, w- I will hire you. We are doing a 10 week one night stand tour, uh, bus tour, United States, starting in January, but I can't pay you for any rehearsals. You would get minimum Agma pay at that time was like $79 a week or whatever it was. And I said, Okay, um, I, I'm glad you take that, but I just paid an advance, one week advance of. of company classes. Is it possible I can have that money back because they desperately need it? Yeah. And he said, no. But he said, I can lend you some money and you can pay me once you, you get started getting salary. And I thought that was very harsh. And uh, I was very upset about that. Now, having been a director for 37 years, I can understand there, there are money problems a lot of times. And sometimes you have to cut down wherever you can. And I did pay him back.
0: Yeah, out of, my out of your $79 a week.
1: Yes, but I got an incredible experience, uh, mm-hmm. 10 week on one night bus tour in the United States. I did three of those with the company. And uh, that was incredible experience of just getting to know yourself, what you were capable of, the strength you needed to survive those tours. and. Uh, there were no understudies, you know, if you didn't feel good or you were sick or you, know, you danced, that was it.
0: What were you dancing on those tours at that time?
1: There were usually three or four, four or five ballets that he carried. There was, one was called Con which was by Lou Christensen, who was the director in San Francisco Ballet. Yeah. Uh of Balanchine. And there was that, and there was one more ballet. I can't remember what that was. So that, like there were five ballets that he would have four ballets every night and maybe rotate one in between it sometimes. And that was it, eight o'clock bus call, uh, getting usually into a town about two o'clock, trying to get some straight to the theater to rehearse, trying to find something to eat after that, and then the performance, and then back to the, to the hotel, dead tired. Um, we always had to wash our own tights from the costumes, you know, the white tights from Paris East, they, oh, there was ropes, that was the uh, Geraldo Pino's ropes, which was interesting ballet, but it had, meant we had to crawl on the floor a lot, be on the floor, and we had like just l- tight and leotards, and, and there was the costumes for the guys, and that was before floors had linoleum or so we danced on wooden floors, and sometimes we got so many splinters that looked like a porcupine. But that was our responsibility to keep those tights and and costume cleaned. Mm. So they didn't always dry overnight in the hotel.
0: In the moist tights the next day.
1: Well, we hung them up on the bus, (laughs) covered all the windows, you know, tights, trying to dry during the next 250 mile drive and whatever it was.
0: But what an initiation into all the layers of ballet production. Yes. And what were your impressions of the United States You, this young man from Iceland and there you are driving all over the United States?
1: First of all, uh, you know, you try to sleep on the bus because you're tired. And during the middle of the winter, January, February, March, there's not, you know, it's, um, can be bleak out there when you, but there were long trips. We went from New York. We started first and foremost, New Jersey, um, seven days later, having danced every night, we were in New Mexico. Wow. From Phoenix, we flew to Los Angeles. I remember that. I thought it was the first time I was on a jet plane. We danced there. We drove up California. We go all the way up to Seattle and then across the Northern States all the way back to
0: New York. Wow. It's just exhausting just thinking about it.
1: (laughs) They were not easy, but it was nice. You got to know you know, dances very well and the camaraderie and everybody was very supportive. I think I can say that Mm. some gave me some hard time in the beginning because I was they felt I was taking their roles away from them. But that was not my choice. It was Mr. Rob Joffrey's. Yeah.
0: And and what were some of the lessons that you learned from your work with Mr. Joffrey as a dancer, as a teacher, as a curator, as a choreographer?
1: Bob, uh, I call him Bob. Yeah, was uh, he was a good teacher and even Eric Brun had told me that. It was the first time I became aware of proper placement in class, you know, that has never been stressed when I was in Denmark or, or by my teachers. It was very regimented and, and I became aware of a much more proper way to hold your body in body, you know, the arms. And Bob was uh, uh, the ultimate uh, ballet domain. He loved ballet and, and, and dance. so. He was a very nice person. He was demanding and classy. He was—he knew what he wanted to, and he wanted you to do. But uh, I, I learned from him. But I think what I learned most from Bob was that—how uh, can I say this? Mrs. Rebecca Harkness came into the picture and started supporting the company. So she had a, a wonderful place up in Rhode Island. Uh, Watch Hill, Rhode Island, where we all went for a summer, we spent like two or three months there, creating new works. And uh, he would bring in choreographers. And what he did was, to my knowledge, he was the first ballet director to start bringing in contemporary choreographers and modern dance choreographers, which was uh, an eye opening to me uh, because of I had never been part of that, so I think what I learned from him was that that mix was fascinating and, and we were fascinating dancing with almost different styles. Some of them I, I was maybe better at than others, but I mean it, it went from Alvin Ailey to uh, Anna Sokolov, which was a really radical choreographer. Jack Cole was there, John Butler. Uh, Norman Walker, they both came from uh, Martha Graham. So uh, that experience has shaped me as an artistic director of the San Francisco Ballet. So that's what I learned actually most from Robert Joffrey was that excitement that can come from challenging the the traditional classical ballet with infusion of some modern uh, movement, dance ideas, so I think that that was something that I will always be uh, grateful for, for Bob.
0: And with him being such a ballot domain and a lover of the history and development of dance, did he talk to you all about that? Like when he would mount a new production, would he sit you all down and say, you know, we're, we're reconstructing such and such, or we're bringing in this not piece really, for this reason?
1: Not really, it was just more that, you know, they try different styles and, and uh, do different things. And at the same time, he brought in Vera Volkova to teach the company. Um, so we were always in the, in the classical idiom training. He just loved uh, any kind of a dance. He had danced himself with uh, Roland Petit in France. Um, so I think he had been exposed to other forms of, of dance styles than, than only classical ballet.
0: Had you intersected with Volkova at all when you were in Denmark or did you meet her for the first time with Joffrey? I met her for the first time with Joffrey.
1: Yeah, she was, she was great. She was a wonderful teacher. Um, she taught very much in pictures. You know, he, she said, picture this, picture that. And she the one, is the one who's credited with teaching Stanley Williams how to teach. And Stanley Williams and I came to School of American Ballet at the same time both arrived in the fall of, of 1960. Uh, that was my, how can I say, sort of saving grace that he, he was Danish, so well, I spoke Danish with him. He knew of me from Tivoli, he had seen me dance in the Tivoli Gardens and the Pantomime Theater. And to put the, the real dot on the story, he was one of the three dancers that came to Iceland to, for me to see when I was 5
0: years old Wow.
1: Yeah, life is strange sometimes, isn't it?
0: And what, what was his influence on you, and how did his teaching shape you?
1: Oh, uh, he was an enormous influence. Matter of fact, I was still dancing with, Hartness, with Joffrey, and then it became Harkness. And when we were dancing in Europe, which was mostly where we danced, uh, there were times that he would go to Denmark to teach in the summer. And if I was in, in uh, Europe, I would use some opportunities to go to Copenhagen and take classes with him, which the Royal Danish Theatre allowed me to do at that time, thank God. Um, so he, he influenced me a great deal of my, the way I danced. You know, there's, I always liken it to being uh, when you start as a child to dance. Uh, I think the teacher to me, in my mind, is, is like a, a sculptor with his chisel and hammer. He's chiseling away from, to, to create uh, that child dancer eventually. Stanley was the one that came in the end of that with his sandpaper and and smooth everything, makes it gorgeous and beautiful. And that's how I think of Stanley. He's always the one who who was, um, if you were already an established dancer, I think this is why like Nureyev and Misha, they all want to take classes with them because At that time, they have learned how to dance, but he would have an eye to say this goes better like that, or do it this way, or whatever. And it would enhance your way of dancing. Mm. He had an incredible eye for that, I think.
0: Let's listen in to part of Stanley's class.
1: Okay,
0: boss. Were there particular details about technique or about phrasing or porte bras or anything from him that you particularly took hold of in your own dancing?
1: Uh, no, it was just too how can I say obviously he didn't want to make everything even, you know, he would get very excited and said, you know, please "Awesome assemble and you know, he would go go like that and, and you know, make it explode kind of a thing. You know, in between, it was not always on the same level. And uh, no, he, he was wonderful. He was a great person. He became a great friend uh, to myself and my wife. And, um, unfortunately, we sort of lost very much touch once I came to San Francisco because I was not that often in New York, but we stayed in touch, but not like before
0: from joffrey you then danced with the harkness ballet like you're saying and making these very extensive tours all over the world and what are some of your memories from those tours and uh maybe how they compared with the tours you had done with joffrey and then also maybe how ballet resonated with the different cultures that you visited
1: well with joffrey we did some fantastic tours we spent um one tour uh, (laughs) which was sponsored by the state department We started in Portugal in early December. From there, we flew to the Middle East, we flew to Beirut, we spent Christmas there. We went to Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, because Bob was Afghanistan, I think his father was Afghan. So he was a big hero there. And then from there, we went to India for seven weeks. So the tour lasted from early December till mid-April, I think it was. And, you know, you were in, introduced to so many different cultures and seeing things. That was fascinating. Then the same year in the fall, um, we were invited to go to Russia for seven weeks. We started in, uh, in Leningrad and then went to, uh, which now is Ukraine, uh, Donetsk, Kharkov, Kiev, and then in Moscow, but that was seven weeks. And that was in, went from October until just before Christmas.
0: Did you get to see any of the performances of the companies in any of those cities, particularly in Ukraine or Russia?
1: We saw, in the, at the Kirov, we were invited to see a performance. Uh, uh, I can't remember what, it might have been Sleeping Beauty, I can't remember. And um, we saw a performance, I want to say also in Moscow, but I might be wrong, but, but I remember seeing uh, Soloviev, who was an incredible dancer. I think that was in something that that was not in uh, Sleepy Beauty, so we must have seen another ballet. Yeah, but we didn't see very much. But people were were taken by the company, and uh, they loved it. Uh, It was all new to them. They had never seen anything that kind of a repertory.
0: Wow. And did you all travel with live music, or did recordings, or how did that work?
1: Good question. You know, I, I don't remember. I truly don't remember with Joffrey if we had live music or if there have music that we had, you know, gotten some musicians in Russia. I truly don't remember that. But I know with with Harkness, when we toured Europe, there were musicians with us. Not many, but small orchestra.
0: And how did you, uh, well, 1969, you were the silver medalist at the first international ballet competition in Moscow. And could you share with us some of that experience of preparing and performing at that historic event?
1: it was Mrs. Harkness who came to me and said, um, I would like to send you to Moscow to take part in a competition. And we had been rehearsing a lot, several weeks in New York. And as any dancer, we sort of get tired of that. We want to do performances. So I said, oh, sure, i would do it. Fine. She said, it'd be good for you. You can see other dancers from all over the world and see how they are. And, and you know, there was no question about you would win or anything. That was never came into the conversation. So she sent me and my wife there and uh, I prepared, uh, which I thought was the proper translation of the, of the rules from the Russian consulate in New York. Turned out that it was not quite right. <laughs> I needed two variations of each, each set, you know, so six. If I got to all three stages, uh, turned out that I needed, no, I needed five, I could repeat one, it said. And that was not true because I had to have the sixth variation, but that's another story. And so we arrived in, in Moscow, my wife and I and with a tape recorder of tape music. and Stanley had let me take a recording of his classes, so I, I took his classes. I was offered I could train with Russian, you know there, but I knew it was so different for me. It was bad enough to be dancing on the stages that were very raped. Uh, I just didn't want to risk it, so I did my own class every day with, with Stanley's tape. So when we uh, arrived at the, uh, the official uh, signing in what you were doing and letting him you know what, what your what you plan, I started saying, you know, I'm dancing this and this and this and that. And I had an interpreter, and I could tell that by the language of of the fellow who sat at the desk that, with names like that, you know, dances at a gathering, solo, um, variation for four of Dolan, uh, zealous variation of, of, of MacDonald, Romeo Alone by Norman Walker, Sylvia Potter by Balanchine. You know, he just sort of looked at me and, and apparently said something like, don't worry about it with this, you're not gonna get anywhere. And I think that's when my competitive spirit
0: <laughs> ignited.
1: <laughs> Wait a minute, you know, don't dismiss me like that. And so I, I went through the first stage, I went to the second stage, I got into the third stage, and then they asked me, What is the solo, sixth solo? And I said, I was told assessment translation is five. No, no, that's wrong. We have to have a solo. So luckily there was a Danish delegation from their dancers with their teachers and coaches, like everybody else had except myself and my wife. And they had let me take classes with them if I wanted to. So the Danish born classes, but I was fairly familiar with by that time. So we were having breakfast, everybody down in the canteen or whatever we were. And I had to come up with a solo. So. Marlene, my wife, said, you know, she remember Eric Brun dancing a a black swan variation, but it was not absolutely the traditional, but it was was interesting. So she said, why don't you ask, um, It his name was um, was, uh, Frank Schalfus. He was the father of Schalfus.
0: We had Peter on this podcast a year or two ago talking about steadfast tin soldiers.
1: So, uh, I went over to him and said, uh, I, I understand Eric Roon did a black part of the I mean, variation. Do you know it? Oh, yeah, I know it. He said, well, I need a variation. And so we sat down at the breakfast table with his fingers and talking. He said, well, you do this and you do a cabriole, and you do, do this and, and a double tour. And I learned the variation there over breakfast. So uh, I, I had a pianist assigned to me uh, to rehearse. and. Um, she said, well, I have to play because the competition was still going on. I, I can only stay 15 minutes. And I said, well, I have a recorder. Can you play me three different tempos? Slow, medium, and fast. And then we'll figure out what works best for me. And she did and then recorded and she left. Then I needed a costume. So I told my interpreter, you know, is there any way I can get a costume? And she went straight to Yulanova who was the head of the competition. and She gave permission for me to have somebody take me to the wardrobe department. And I was taken at the Bolshoi and I was brought upstairs somewhere in the attics and there were hundreds and thousands of costumes there. And the guy took a look look at me and said, oh, I think I, you know, something like, you know, he brought me to a place and he pulled out a costume from from Black Swan, held it up against me and said, yeah. Obviously he said that will fit, you know, like through the interpreter and that's okay. So there was a name in there, of course, a Russian name, and I didn't know who that was. And just for curiosity, I said, whose costume is this? And, and my interpreter says, that's uh, the famous Vasiliev. So I said, wow, that sounds like a, a good luck piece. So I, I danced that. And 10 minutes before I was supposed to go on stage, the pianist arrived and she said, what, what tempo did you choose? I said, I chose whatever it was. She said, OK, I will play that. So I went on stage and she played it and I danced. And it was, even though it was not completely that absolute traditional version of Black Swan variation, but it was fairly close, people loved it. And um, from there, I passed on to a silver medal.
0: After the formal competition concluded, there was a concert for the winners in which Helgi danced the variation from Balanchine's Sylvia Padide. Let's listen to Helgi's performance and the applause from that night. <laughs> What an experience. And then it wasn't long after that that you then came to join New York City Ballet. How did you come to join New York City Ballet?
1: Well, I had come, I had stayed in contact with uh, with General Robbins and found out that he had sort of followed me through the year and and kept an eye on me because I think he felt he was sort of responsible bringing me to America. And um, at one point, actually, I have to go back. At one point when I was there, the first year he was putting Ballet USA together again for the second tour. I got a call from his assistant saying I should show up at the audition, which I did, bring a pair of sneakers. I didn't even know what sneakers were, I was told what it was. And I went to all those auditions, starting with cattle calls and you know, I was kept, I was kept, and I was kept. And by the end, he was rehearsing the time for the auditions were at Carnegie Hall, one of the studios there. And I think there were like six or seven of us left. And he finally came over to me and he said, um, I'm not gonna take you. It's not, it's not the right thing for you. You've done very well, but uh, you know, you were beautifully trained classical dancer and you used to pursue that. You can always do this kind of a movement later. And that was again, very disappointing. The, the school had said, I couldn't join the company. Robin says, no, I can't take you. And that was the reason I went back. So when I came back from Russia, I realized that my strength lay in as a classical dancer. And that's how I've been trained. And I wanted to get out of the tour that Harkness was planning for the next spring for Europe and all that. And and they said, no, you have signed a contract. You can't break it. So I had met Jerry. Obviously he gave me permission to use one of the solos from Dance at the Gathering. At the competition. And so far as I know, I might be wrong, but so far as you know, I think it's the only time he gave permission to anybody use a solo in competition because he didn't like competitions. So when I went to him to talk to him about, you know, I have to do this tour, but I just don't know what to do. What can you advise me? Where shall I go? What shall I do? Because I think Harkness is not going to be the right company for me. And he said, well, let's see. Let's see what happens. As it would be, the company, Harkness went to, to Europe. I went with them, I danced, and we were in Barcelona when basically the company folded. And uh, at that time I had been letting know, they knew that I wanted to leave. I didn't know where I was gonna go, but uh, I got a te- two telegrams. One was from National Ballet of Canada, asking if I would be available to come there and dance there. And the other one was from uh, Barbara Horgan, uh, Mr. Balancing Secretary assistant and uh, said, when you come back to New York, make sure you come and see Mr. B at the State Theater. So uh, we came back to New York, my wife and I, we had a, a son uh, about a year old by that with us. And um, I went to the theater. Somebody brought me to Mr. B and was standing on the stage. It was just before the performance started and introduced me and he said, would you like to come and watch the performance? And I said, sure. You know, so he took me to his seat up in, uh, upstairs and we sat there. We didn't speak very much. Uh, you know, Valentin was not very talkative sometimes. And um, after the performance, I came back with him and I had been used to, when I'd met with directors of the Harkness of Jeffrey, you always went to an office and you to close the door and, talk and you you know. talk. And there we were standing in the middle of the stage and, and dancers around and they were all probably curious who I was and what he was talking to me about. Valentin said, well, um, now don't forget, I had received a telegram saying, please come and see Mr. B, right? So I really expected to be have some kind of an offer, you know. Or would, you like, would you be interested in joining New York City Ballet? No, it was nothing like that. It was like, well, if you have nothing to do, come and take some classes. That turned out to be a typical balancing I, I found out later, you know. So I went back. Uh, we had stayed in the hotel, my wife and I, with uh, our son. And she was very anxious. What happened? What happened? Did you have, do, do we have a job? <laughs> And I said, I don't know, I don't think, I'm not sure. So I went and took classes with the company, a few days. No one said anything, but four or five days. One of the soloist ladies came to me and said, oh, congratulations. And I looked, congratulations on what? Well, you're in the company. I said, no one has said anything to me. She said, well, go downstairs and see Betty Cage, she will tell you. So I went down the floor and uh, knocked on her door and said, "You know, what is this? I hear somebody's telling me I'm in the company." And she said, "Oh, no one told you. They must have forgotten." Yes, yes. Balanchine decided he was going to hire you. You're a principal dancer.
0: What was your reaction?
1: Well, I was I was thrilled. You know, I was, <laughs> you know, that had started there, and it took me nine years to get back.
0: Here ends part one. The rest of my conversation with Helgi Thomason continues in part two, which is available now.